want to start off by just sharing a story. I love hiking. And I know that hiking isn't everyone's uh, favorite thing to do, uh, but it is uh, one of mine, and I absolutely love it. And one of the best hikes, one of my favorite hikes I've ever done is in a place in the Western Cape called the Cedarburg. And uh, not uh, too dissimilar to the Drakensberg, uh, a little bit drier, obviously, being in the Western Cape. And uh, this particular hike uh, that I embarked on doing uh, was a hike to what's called the Wolfberg Arch. Uh, there is a picture up on the screen. That is the, the Wolfberg Arch. It's impressive. Um, that picture is zoomed in, and I took it uh, myself because that's about as close as I got to the arch on uh, this particular hike. Uh, it's about a 40-kilometer hike. Uh, we, we started out at about 4 a.m. in the morning, but uh, the reason we didn't get to the arch, and we only got as far as we could to zoom in on that picture, is because to get to the Wolfberg Arch, you have to get through something called the Wolfberg Cracks. And uh, the next picture coming up is going to be the Wolfberg Cracks. So uh, unfortunately, what you can't see is just how steep it is. And so you start off and you're literally just climbing straight up till you get to that sheer rock face. And you've got to climb into the mountain and you come then out up onto the top and hike to the arch. It's really, if you're into outdoors and you're into nature, this is, is, is something quite spectacular. Now, because it's quite remote and if you've done these things, there's a little bit of money that you pay at the start of the hike just for conservation fees. And then you get a little map. Now, the map is literally like A5 black and white prints. And it's really vague and really badly done. But uh, the path is quite clear to start getting up to the cracks. When you get to the Wolfberg Cracks, you have the choice of two routes to take. The first route is literally called the Easy Path. And uh, that is kind of where you go to go into the mountain. That's the Easy Path. Then it tells you to uh, another option uh, for you. And it's literally called on the map the Dark Passage. And that's it over there to climb into the mountain and get up to the top. Now, two 20-something-year-old guys uh, hiking out in the mountain. Which path do you think we took? The Dark Passage. Now, I must tell you about my hiking partner, Kevin, uh, considerably taller than me with extraordinary long arms and legs. So this kind of situation, he was just cruising. He was able to kind of scale rock faces and get to where we needed to be. I'm not great in these situations. And uh, to try and get to the dark passage, again, it's unclear, but Kevin reckoned he had found the roots and he had slipped across the rock face and called me to follow. Now, just to try and picture, you've got a visual representation of where I'm at. And I kind of found myself round about over there. And I had lost sight of Kevin. And I had my arms stretched as wide as I could, kind of shifting around this rock because some of the path had fallen away. And I kind of shifted across a little bit too much. And blind panic started to just well up within me. And I remember actually just screaming out because I could no longer see Kevin. I'm this close up to the rock. And uh, I'm not looking down, but that's a good indication of what's below me. And I remember just shouting out, Kevin, I'm going to die. Kevin, I'm going to die. Kevin, I'm going to die. 
And I became acutely aware of the literal meaning of the phrase, I'm holding on for dear life. <laughs> because I was literally holding on for dear life. Uh, and because my mate Kevin has extraordinarily long appendages, he was able to scale back around and get to me, kind of help me out of my situation and, and get an arm to me and, and get me to safety. Uh, the reason we didn't get to the arch was because of how long I took to recover from my ordeal and for my legs to stop shaking and to get enough composure to take another step. But that phrase, I'm holding on for dear life. While that has some literal meanings, and I hope none of you find yourself in a situation where you are literally holding on for dear life. But we use that saying so much in, in just normal conversation or in our lives. So maybe not exactly like that, but a question, how, how is your marriage going? Well, we're just barely holding on. How's things going with your business? Oh, the economic times that we're in, we're holding on for dear life. And we use language like that to kind of describe the situations that many of us find ourselves in. So having an interesting conversation with some people, and what we were trying to do was to describe Joburg in one word. It was a really interesting conversation as we were trying to uh, come up with the word that best described the city of Joburg. A lot of words were uh, thrown out or suggested, but the one that everyone agreed on in the conversation was the word desperate. That the city of Joburg and the people in the city of Joburg are desperate. And you kind of see that with the pace that everybody lives their lives by. Just, uh, you, you head out into the city, you know, we're sheltered a little bit here in the south by that, but the pace at which people drive, the pace at which people move through the city is kind of driven by desperation because of how little hope and the hopelessness that so many people are experiencing in their everyday life. And work is a, is a great example of that in the city. You know, people are struggling financially. They're kind of locked into financial situations and, and, and there's real mounting pressure for everyday life. And so what's the solution for that? People just think, well, my hope to get out of the situation that I'm in is maybe a little bit more money. And so to get a little bit more money, I need to work a little bit harder, which means I need to get there a little bit earlier. I need to stay a little bit later. I need to get there a little bit faster. I need to push a little bit harder. And so there's this rising desperation because people are feeling the hopelessness in, in so many areas of their lives. And I wonder what levels of hopelessness we're experiencing in our lives here this morning. Again, it might be the financial pressure. As I said, you might be in a situation where debt is rising. Might be that your uh, family situation has reached a, a level of desperation and there's hopelessness there 
with your family. It might be with your relationship with your children. It might be uh, with uh, your spouse or parents. Uh, it could be that your business is really struggling this year in, in the economic times that you're in. I, I know something that you might find humorous, but the reality of this is dating sites becoming so popular uh, because of uh, how many people are feeling the hopelessness in their relationship status. And so what, what tends to happen is people are, are saying, you know, I thought I would be you know, married by now. I thought I would be dating by now. And in response to that growing hopelessness in their uh, relationship status, there's this increase in dating and, and one-off dates and, and dating sites. But all around, there's just so many people that are, are experiencing a measure of hopelessness or growing hopelessness. And the response is, well, I need to find hope. I need to find happiness in this area of my life. And I need to find a solution to that. And that's why people are working harder, dating more, uh, just stressing out so much. And I don't know, you could even put your your own uh, example in your own situation, maybe along the lines of, if only I could, then would be better. You know, if only my business could get a break, then I would be happy. If only I could settle my debt, then I would feel financially secure. If only I could fix my marriage, then I'd finally have happiness. But you know, the reality of hopelessness is not something that is new to the world. In fact, a hard, sad reality is that suffering and hardship has been a theme for many, many generations. And many cultures and communities around the world experience this. And even if you think through uh, our biblical history, this is a reality for God's people. Uh, Experiencing times of real hope, and experiencing times of real hopelessness. Think about the hopelessness of 400 years in slavery. But think about the hope of uh, being set free and entering towards the promised land. Then the hopelessness of 40 years of wandering. But then the hope of actually finally entering in and and, and gaining the inheritance. Think of uh, the hopelessness that came with the, the conquest and exile into Babylon. But then again, the hope of coming back in and restoring uh, the nation of Israel. By the time that Jesus comes again, God's people are experiencing a measure of hopelessness. This time it is under the oppression of Rome. What has happened uh, to the world is Rome is the world's superpower and they have conquered pretty much everyone And the nation of Israel, the country of Israel, they are under oppression. They're subjugated by Rome. Uh, There's military control. Uh, They're being exploited for taxes and having to pay uh, for that. And this is where Jesus enters in. God becomes a man in Jesus. And he steps into this hopeless situation that the nation of Israel is feeling. And now at this time, there's growing hope in the midst of all this hopelessness. Because God's people, they know uh, the promises that God had made. They knew that God would be sending someone who would save them as people. 
that would bring hope and end the hopelessness once and for all that they uh, kept on experiencing as people. And as Jesus entered into his public ministry, as he started to speak publicly, as he started to do miracles, people were gaining and growing in their hope for what God was finally going to be doing as people or for his people. And one such moment, Jesus revealed a bit about himself in uh, Matthew chapter 12. And he shared this. Aware of this, and this was already people starting to uh, plot to kill Jesus because of the momentum that he was growing uh, around him. Aware of this, Jesus uh, withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all of their sick. Warning them not to tell who he was. Um, sorry, warning them not to tell who he was. And this was fulfilled. Uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Until he leads justice to victory, and in his name, the nations will put their hope. And so people are starting to look to Jesus. They're starting to look to him, and are starting to really grow in their hope that maybe finally, this time, the promises of God are going to come true for us as a nation. This growing hope, and even with Jesus encouraging them and sharing, yes, I am the one with whom you need to be putting your hope in. Fast forward a little bit uh, to what we celebrated last week with Palm Sunday. And the stage is set. Uh, Jesus has been avoiding Jerusalem because uh, the time was not ready, because he knew uh, the growing uh, kind of hope and tone with everyone, just thinking maybe here is our Messiah. He enters into Jerusalem, and we know what everyone was celebrating and what they were saying. Hosanna, Hosanna, they were worshiping. Here is King Jesus. Finally, an answer to all our hopelessness. A lot can happen in a week, and with everyone celebrating. That finally, the answer to our hopelessness is here. Didn't go as planned for all of Jesus' followers. We know that at night he was betrayed. We know that he was then arrested and trialed. And part of that trial led up to him uh, being publicly beaten and executed on the cross. And we pick up that part of the story in Matthew 27, verse 45, and I'm going to read it for us, and it is also going to be up on the screen for you to follow. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them got a sponge, 
filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And then Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open of the bodies of many holy people who had died and were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after, the resur- after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, and they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of um, uh, James and Joseph, and the mother of uh, Zebedee's sons. So much had happened in the lives of the followers of Jesus. This growing expectation that here is our Savior. Even so that they proclaimed him king on his entry into Jerusalem. The problem that they were now experiencing is saviors don't die. Saviors aren't supposed to be arrested and beaten and executed in the most humiliating way at the hands of the oppressors, the one who he was supposed to free us from. That wasn't supposed to be the way the story ended for the followers of Jesus. So much so that there's so much confusion and despondency that they left, they disbanded, they, they go back to their families, they go back to their jobs. They'll go, well, you know, so much for that. You know, so much for all of that hope that we had. This is over now. But they went back to where they were before Jesus came. And they're back to experiencing their hopelessness. But the amazing thing about what Jesus does and what so many of us miss is that the hope of Jesus and the hope of the cross is Jesus meets us at our greatest point of hopelessness. If what we needed was a military uh, commander to overthrow an oppressive government as our greatest source of hopelessness. Jesus would have come as a soldier and he would have raised an army and he would have defeated Rome. If our greatest need was economic freedom, he would have come as a business guru, sorted out the world economy. Now, if our greatest source of hopelessness was our relationship status, he would have come as Cupid, been this perfect matchmaker But none of those things are our greatest source of hopelessness. What is the point for us to have everything our heart desires here on this earth? To be financially secure. To have uh, the most comfortable life. To have the perfect spouse. But still face an eternity of hopelessness. And that is why Jesus does not come to meet those needs that for some of us might be very real in our lives. He comes to meet our greatest source of hopelessness, which is where we stand before God our Father. 
where Jesus comes is a savior, a sacrifice where he dies on the cross in our place for us and to deal with what we could never deal with. I don't know where you stand and what you understand about Christianity. And I know this whole concept for people to understand that I'm, you know, as Christians, we use this phrase, I'm sinful by nature, that there is something within me that is unacceptable to God, that he stands apart from me and we can't be in a relationship with him because of, of who I am and what's inside of me. We battle with this because, you know, for the most part, we think we're decent people, but I think everyone can actually agree with this. That if you have to just focus and just think a little bit about yourself for a moment. You might have a large bank account and think you don't need anything. You might have secure relationships in your life and, and feel fulfilled in your life. But if you look inward for a moment. You know they're saying, I, I know I'm not perfect. Why does that statement exist in our vocabulary? Because we know that in every single one of us, that there are things in our lives that we don't like, that we know that we struggle with. For example, you might have a fantastic life, but you have a temper. Things might be great for you, but even then you battle with pride or jealousy, or there's things that you've done that you regret. There's, there's things in your life, and another way that you can word it is to say, well, there's you know, in fact, a large part of my life, I'm actually broken. I battle to forgive. You know, I, whatever it is that you journey with. And even if you don't agree with the language of I'm using that I'm sinful by nature, it doesn't matter who you are. You know that there's things in your own life that make you not perfect. And this is what we talk about as the major need for Jesus. That brokenness those aspects of your character, you might have some of it in control and you can manage that bit of your life, but that separates us from God. Because where we say, I know I'm not perfect, we know that he is perfect. And it's that separation that is too great for us to ever have any hope past this life into the life to come. And without Jesus as our Savior, who dealt with that between us and God, there is no hope for any person. So many of us think the source of happiness, the source of joy and contentment and peace in this world is, is finances. And so all their hope and trust is in finances. All their hope and trust is in relationships. All their hope and trust is in friends or families or they put their hope in their identity by what they look like and, and, and how we dress and behave, the car we drive or the suburb that we live in. And we, we think that is our hope. Unfortunately, none of that deals with where we are with God. And praise Jesus is because he came to deal with that. The extent of our brokenness, the extent of our sinful nature meant that something had to be done and, and, and dealt with with God. Too broken, too sinful to do that myself. In fact, I had the inability to ever make it right with God. He's just too perfect. I am just too broken. 
In fact, a debt had to be paid, a price had to be paid. That's not 100% helpful language, but we understand paying debts well in um, our, our country, and it's something that we do regularly is pay a debt. And so we'll use that language. For me to have my sinful nature dealt with so that I could stand in relationship with the Father, that debt had to be paid. The blood of Jesus, his death on the cross was what paid that debt. That is where my hope is now. And the way that I stand right with God is I've not put my hope in anything else other than the death of Jesus. And if you've wanted to know what's at the heart of uh, the Christian faith, what it means to be a believer, is that I no longer put my hope in anything other than Jesus. And he is the source of my hope. I trust him. I trust his death on the cross. And on Sunday, we're gonna speak about the resurrection, but I trust in that physical, historical event. And that has secured my eternity and that's made me right today with the Father. That I stand in right relationship with God. I've had my sins forgiven. I'm declared righteous by God because my hope is in nothing else but Jesus. And my encouragement to every single one of us here today is I want you to genuinely evaluate your life. And I'm gonna pray, the band's gonna come up and we're gonna move into a time of community. But I want you to think this morning, where is my hope? Again, you might be doing the church thing. You might own a Bible. You might have ticked Christian on some form um, or some social media site. But if you're really honest with yourself, your hope for this life is in your finances and your job and your bank accounts. It might be in your spouse or in the relationships that you have. As a single, your hope might be that one day Prince Charming is gonna sweep me off my feet or I'm gonna meet the most beautiful woman in the world. Your hope might be in this business venture that you're cooking up while you try to fall asleep at night. But you've realized you've never put your hope in the finished work of Jesus. You've never said, Jesus, I'm tired of the stress in my life. I'm tired of chasing after all of these things to, to try and gain some sort of fulfillment. I'm laying that aside, Jesus, and I'm putting my hope in you. And I wanna start to put you as the foundation for my life. And I also just need to add this, putting your hope in Jesus doesn't mean that everything's gonna come right in your life. It just means that your greatest source of hopelessness is met, which is your relationship with God, which is secure for all eternity. And that is what we need more than anything else in this world. And if you have never done that this morning, I encourage you, what a day to go, Jesus, I'm laying aside everything that I've put my hope and trust in. And I'm finally going to put my hope in you. And then maybe even for you who have been a believer for a long time, that you've kind of lost sight of what it means to have your hope in Jesus. And that you've kind of got caught up in the trappings of this world. What a wonderful opportunity for you to repent of that. And again, just anew, put your hope in Jesus. How it's going to work is Jody is going to be leading us in a song.
Use this time to reflect. If you need to pray and say, Jesus, my hope is now in you, do that. And then once she's um, sung a bit into the song, the band is gonna take a pause of the singing and just go instrumentally. And you'll have an opportunity to go and take communion. Just a reminder of what communion is. It is the body of Jesus broken for us. That's the bread. And as you take a piece of that and you, and you break a piece off, I want you in your heart to remember Jesus. Without this, I have no hope. And your body broken for me is the source of my hope. And as you take uh, a cup of that juice, which symbolizes his blood again, Jesus, without your blood, the debt of my sin could not be paid. And again, I'm hopeless. What we love to do, especially today, is if you're here with your family, and if you are comfortable with this, families, take communion together. And parents, you can pray with your kids and encourage your children and what this means. It's a beautiful time for us to be thinking like this and, and actually just find people and just celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you and you alone are our hope in the midst of the greatest hopelessness that every single one of us have. Jesus, none of us in our own ability could ever overcome that hopelessness. Nothing we could do, nothing we could buy, nothing we could achieve. But thank you for what you have done on the cross in our place for our sin. That all we have to do is stop trusting ourselves and say, Jesus, I trust in you and you alone. Jesus, I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your death.